Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links, and see where it takes us. John, what do you got? I've got December 14, uh, which Ooh. apparently matters uh, in the Eastern Orthodox liturgics. <laughs> um, there's a weird linkage below the title of the article where it gives you a hyperlink to December 13th. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Church calendar in the middle of the line, and then at the end of the line, a link to December 15th. So, not sure what that's about, because it <laughs> seems like it's like saying December 13th is first, then comes Eastern, Orth- Eastern Orthodox Church calendar, then comes December 15th, then December 16th, <laughs> then December 17th. That's the way it looks on the page. Huh. So, I'm not really sure... What that's alluding to, maybe we'll find out, maybe we won't. Um, basically, it's a list of commemorations and celebrations that have to do with December 14th. And there are surprisingly a lot of them for being in an already crowded month for saints, given that All Saints Day is none <laughs> too far away. So, um, maybe that's an option. We have some uh, religious history type things going on over here. What do you got, Eric? Well... Um, kind of branching out of a familiar topic a little bit. I have Bicycling with Moliere. It is a 2013 French comedy drama film hmm. directed by Philippe Legay. And it doesn't have a plot description or anything. Okay. Just a list of cast members, only three of which have articles of their own. Hmm. Um... It's mm. 104 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did not star anybody that you would have heard of, because it is French, and uh-huh. we don't know too many French actors at the here. No, we don't, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say Let's... your article is probably it's more beefier. promising. There's there's a lot more options. You got you have ancient histories you can go into. You got modern day celebrations you can go into. You got a bunch of dudes, presumably. There's even an earthquake in this thing. So maybe we should just do this. Yeah, I'm thinking that's like religious history seldom trumps cinema. However, uh, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> the one time it would happen. <laughs> so it's just December 14. December 14. Eastern Orthodox liturgics in parentheses. Ooh, cool little symbol. I know. That cross is probably the most BA cross <laughs> of all the crosses. Yeah, I mean, for sure. That cross isn't just a cross. That's a cross where, like, they were, like, pulling Jesus' hair, and his feet were, like, they, he was given a foot rest, but it was, like, all, like, like 
contorted footrest and made his knees hurt probably. Like that's a that's like that's a really like that's an Iron Maiden of a cross. Yeah. Woo! But I, don't, I really don't know what that little slashy thing at the bottom. I think they're just trying to make it look cool after a yeah, fight. Yeah, I, I think they're just like <laughs> had a normal cross. They're like, yeah, let's beef it up a little let's bit. Style, <laughs> let's stylize. Let's stylize this thing. Let's give it some real edges. Yeah, look at that. That's edgy. It's an edgy cross. Um, a little more about December 14th, and at least uh, what it has to do with Eastern Orthodox liturgics is explained below. Um, all fixed commemorations below, celebrated on December 27th by Orthodox churches on the old calendar. Uh, for December 14th, Orthodox churches on the old calendar commemorate the saints listed on December 1st. Wait. Wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. So, 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 so. There are fixed commemorations according to okay. the old calendar. There's okay. an old calendar and a new calendar. That's probably where some of the, like, phase Wrong. shift comes into confusion. Yeah. Um, and it looks like saints that are listed as saints as of December 1st don't get celebrated until two weeks later. Okay. And the same thing happens on December 14th almost, where we somehow lose a day, so, and... <laughs> <laughs> so they basically re... they shifted the, the calendar and put yeah. the saints' days on different days. Right. So they have when they were they they treated with respect the days with which they were initially recognized as saints on the old calendar and then adjusted it for the new calendar once they made the switch. So I don't know if there are any saints actually being celebrated, but it must be the saints that have become saints as of December 1st. Oh. That's what we're celebrating. Okay, let's read well, on. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get some explanation. Um maybe doesn't really seem like it, though. Uh, this is a very bare-bones article, mostly lists. Yeah, it's pretty much just a list of saints. There's yeah. saints. There's and martyrs. Yeah, there's saints. There's pre-schism and post-schism saints. Um, so is that like uh, they were not saints and then they joined the band Tool and then performed the song Schism? Became yeah, I think that's that must have been how they did it, because those ones. I mean, they they came way later. They came much closer to the advent of the band Tool. So that's the only reason I can see for there being a what is that one thousand year gap between the pre-schism and post-schism saints. Yeah, there's some kind of schism in there. It's a pretty big schism. That's a thousand year schism. Like what happened in those thousand years? Like, Nothing. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, the unfortunate thing is is that we don't have a link to explain to us what a schism might be. I mean, yeah. we know the concept. I'm just saying, like, what is this particular schism? Yeah, it would be nice to know. I wonder if there's any kind of note or reference about it. The notes on this are actually surprisingly good. Yeah. They're more thorough than the article. There are four mentions of schism. Two are in the link to the 
respective pre and post subheadings, and then the other two are in the subheadings themselves, <laughs> leading us to have no further insight from this article. Hmm. hmm. Maybe a quick Google of Eastern Orthodox schism. Wow, there's a Catholic.com. All your Catholic answer needs. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Just what I've always been looking for. How would I have not... How would I have... I'm not even going to continue this thought. It's enough. Schism... Helping here. Okay, the Norman Conquest, which we have. I feel like we've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, before. yeah, that of was. Southern Italy. Wait, what? Norman Conquest of Southern. They must have conquested other places too. They must have conquested more than just England. They must yeah. have Napoleons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it helped touch off the Great Schism between Eastern and Western Christendom. When the Catholic Normans took over the Byzantine Rite Greek colonies in southern Italy, they compelled the Greek communities there to adopt the Latin Rite custom of using unleavened bread for the Eucharist. This caused great aggravation among the Greek Catholics because it went against their ancient custom of using leavened bread. So, basically, there was an invasion that... About bread. And <laughs> it was about bread. It was not even about the absence or the use of bread. It was about, do you want flat bread or do you want fat bread? <laughs> that was the entire debate. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So, invasion caused division. And that's what the schism was. And because of that, they couldn't name any more saints. Yeah, they were like, you know what? This is not a good time for it's, I guess, making more saints here. They're probably fighting each other. Like it's probably like there aren't any oh, saints yeah, they're probably at that like point. Trying to, they're all each other's throats. a hard time trying to agree on which people. Are they're all ready to murder them. each other over some bread, and all they it's have like, to kill each other with is butter knives because they're talking about <laughs> bread all the time. And these guys are like, "Hey, this guy's a saint." And they're like, "No, he's not a saint. He's using that kind of bread." He doesn't like the he doesn't like the flat bread. Get him out of here. He can't be a saint. He's unpure. He's got yeast all over him. Well, what do you use? The fat bread? Of course, I use the fat bread. I got yeast. I got yeast right here. Look, I'm gonna make that. I'm gonna take that flat <laughs> that bread. Boom, pow. Puffy bread. <laughs> it's, it's so it's so ridiculous. I've got all the yeast in the world. It's just you don't want to have all the yeast in the world. That's a that's gonna have a negative effect. I'm going to use all the yeast in the world that to make you, one giant loaf of bread. Okay, if somebody did that, that legitimately becomes a threat. That becomes that becomes something that you want to stop. Like that's maybe, an interesting invasion tactic. Though. I mean, it's totally valid. You don't want to give an entire populace a yeast I'm infection. Going to make that, my enemies in bread. <laughs> well, okay. Now that we know about that. Um, have to wonder if it wouldn't be interesting to see either the first or last saint pre or post schism that we have a link to. As a matter of fact, we don't have any options for the post schism saints, so, alright, that kind of limits things. There's also, um, old, uh, old calendar or checking out the East Orthodox Church itself. And of course, how could I have forgotten other commemorations that happen on this day 
where I promise everybody an earthquake. Here it is. It's the commemoration of the Constantinople earthquake of Ooh. 557, to which there is a link. There's also repose of blessed recluse John of <laughs> Cezanovo convent. But I like, face it, I like that he's a blessed recluse. Yeah, like what did he do? <laughs> he was in his house all the time. He was a real good guy because he stayed in his oh, house. Oh man, that guy is such a good guy. All he, he saw, does is just stay in his house. He just stayed in his house. I mean, he stayed out of my way. Anybody. He didn't annoy me. He never has annoyed me one time. I can't say a bad word about him. I've never I been don't in really his know house. anything about him. He never came to the door. I was never in his house. So you know, he's this guy. <laughs> man, I, I am uh, up for an earthquake. You know what? Let's do it. Let's get some tectonic plates shifting. Ooh. It's always nice to see an old, like, recorded earthquake that far back. That must have been substantial. It was. It was a 6.4 by f- from from what modern uh, technology can tell us. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Which is almost as, uh, well, actually a little worse than the earthquake that hit Italy not too long ago, oh, as wow. of the time this podcast was recorded, which will date us at sometime <laughs> in August 2016. Oh well, this happens. Time is a construct, it only moves forward. Sorry, Doctor Who fans. Um, the 557 Constantinople earthquake... Why was it so hard to say? I said it fine the first time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's that problem of looking at the word too much and trying to like say it as you're looking at it instead no. of just powering through it. This thing, this thing just needs a simpler word. It just needs like a better name, shorter name for the yeah. same place. Why don't we call it Constantinople? Why, why, don't, why don't we just call it? No, no, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't even like. I don't. I'm annoyed by the the fricative at the beginning, Istanbul. Let's just do that instead. That's, that's a nicer name. I think it's better. Yeah. I don't know why they call it Constantinople. Anyway, like <laughs> that's that seems like uh like they're naming it after they somebody. I guess. Uh, any case, took place on the night of December fourteenth. This earthquake uh has been described in the works of Agathias, John, Malalaz, and Theophanes the Confessor. <laughs> it caused great damage to Constantinople, then the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and a region frequently afflicted with earthquakes. More minor quakes had preceded the large event, including two in April and October, respectively. The main quake in December was of unparalleled ferocity and almost completely razed the city. It caused damage to the Hagia Sophia, which contributed to the collapse of its dome the next year, as well as damaging the walls of Constantinople to the extent that Hun invaders were able to penetrate it with the ease, uh, not with the ease, just with ease, the following season. I I love the names of some of these people, like Theophanes the Confessor. I just like the last like, name Malalalas. <laughs> like that's <laughs> yeah. Malalas. Where does that come from? I don't know, but it's just it's fun to say. <laughs> um, you just keep going. Yeah, Malalalala. But yeah, um, before the earthquake, uh, Constantinople is part of an active seismic zone. Surprise, surprise. How about it? 
earthquakes were relatively frequent during the reign of Justinian I. How about it? Which is 527 to 565. An earthquake in November 533 had led a crowd to seek refuge at the Forum of Constantine. Please tell me that's also a website. Uh, I hope. (laughs) We can hope that they turned all of the ancient forums into websites that are also forums. But there were no real casualties. Hmm. No real casualties. Only fake ones. Only fake casualties. Rest in peace, little Sebastian. Minor earthquakes were also reported in 540 to 541, 545, 547, 1,000 so, I mean, maybe they just were just like, eh, build it, make it out of stone, build it low to the grounds, that'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then that fateful third earthquake struck in December. Uh-oh. And according to Agathias, Constantinople was almost completely raised to the ground. I feel like we heard that before. Raised oh. to the ground. Like Earlier, what? it does also say almost Raised, the though, like... Raised out- to the... Yeah, that... That implies that it was on fire, doesn't it? Um, the way that raised is spelled. Definition of that. Like R A I S E D would be like raise the roof, but like R A Z E D isn't that fiery death? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's like fiery death. Could be okay, wrong. Okay, here we go. Raise, as defined by Merriam-Webster, as soon as it loads. To destroy something such as a building completely. Uh huh. Um, one also uh, definition is to scrape, cut, or shave off. Uh huh. Makes sense. Uh, or to destroy to the ground. Okay, so fires can raise, but fires are not alone alone in their uh, raising of things. Correct. So earthquakes also raise. Gotcha. Okay. Good clarification. I really just don't like the English language, how something can be raised (laughs) to the ground. (laughs) Raise the roof. Raise the roof to the ground. Wait. (laughs) Um, But yeah... It, it is it, this thing's this thing's raising everything to the ground, and it is unparalleled in magnitude and duration. Hmm. Um, this Agathias also notes that it took place during the celebrations of the Brumalia, or the Festival of Names, which hmm. is a strange name for a festival. Hmm. Uh, shortly before the winter solstice, which you know December fourteenth is very close to December twenty-first. And the entry of the sun to the sign of the Capricorn. He also describes the city as affected by a severe winter prior to the earthquake. 
and Tremors started towards the midnight. When the midnight? Most, <laughs> the midnight. When most residents of Constantinople were sleeping. The tremors awoke the citizens, and as the buildings trembled, shrieks and lamentations could be heard. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can't really hear uh, happy people. This, what? I don't know what the writer of this article is doing, but I'm not sure I'm into it. It's very, <laughs> it's very, you know. Lamentations could be heard from the people who are so frightened by the earthquake. Uh, the successive tremors were accompanied by thunder-like sounds from the ground. The air reportedly grew dim with the Wait, vaporous what? exhalations of a smoky haze rising from an unknown source and gleamed with a dull radiance. Who is saying these things? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm it's like check out it's the... writing down interesting history at this point in history is a lot like watching a movie that was made before Citizen Kane. <laughs> like, you don't appreciate it until you try doing it, and then you're just like, oh, oh, that's the changes that they made. <laughs> that's what we needed to do to make this better. <laughs> and, like, they're still just trying to find their niche as far as, like, what makes a good history? How can I convey the, you know... The real, like, tremor, the real trauma of the situation. Um, I don't know. The air grew dim. <laughs> uh, then the panicked residents started evacuating their houses, as you do. And Agathias observed that the city had a precious few wide open spaces entirely free of obstructions which meant that residents were not safe from falling debris even outdoors. And a shower of sleet soaked those outside, and everyone suffered greatly from the cold. Many sought refuge within the churches of the city. And Agathias notes that disorder reigned. A great number of women, both the lowborn and the noble, were in the streets. Um. Men and women mingled freely, uh. an event unusual in itself. Few paid attention to rank and privilege in the rush to avoid injury. Slaves, for example, paid no attention to the orders of their masters. The district of Regium, close to the port of Constantinople, suffered the greatest loss of houses. Many other buildings were demolished or suffered structural damage. Agathias notes that large numbers of ordinary people perished. Ordinary people? As opposed to, you know, as opposed to real people. <laughs> as opposed to extraordinary people. Right. Uh, while Anatolius was the only casualty among the high-ranking society. By dawn, the earthquake had ceased. The overjoyed people started seeking those nearest and dearest to them, kissing and embracing and weeping with delight and surprise. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like despite... Despite all of the terrible uh, accounts we have to go off of, it still sounds pretty bad. Yeah. Yep, sounds like mass hysteria. It seems like there's some aftermath here. Uh, they mentioned this before, but they're mentioning it again, as Wikipedia articles are wont to do. <laughs> Redundancy is not something you can apparently develop a citation box for. Yep. 
Uh, and I don't mean citation in the good informational way. I mean like the yellow card sort of way. <laughs> um, the dome of the Hagia Sophia was weakened in the earthquake and collapsed completely in May of the year 558. The wow, walls, that was like yeah. four months up. I mean, it was a dome. Domes are pretty structurally. They're just a bunch of arches going down from a center point. Yeah. They're they're impressive to look at, but ultimately, like they they should be once you get them up, they should be pretty good yeah. for a bit. Uh, uh, this yeah. that just kind of is testament to me about how extreme this earthquake was. Yeah, because like it brought down a dome. You know how there's like a perfect dome in Italy that's been there since Rome, that Rome dome, <laughs> the Roma dome. Got off the Rome dome. <laughs> Any case. Uh, says that the walls of Constantinople were also severely damaged, and in early 559, the Huns managed to pass through damaged areas of the walls. Also, churches and other buildings were damaged. Uh, Justinian I started a short period of mourning. He did not wear his crown for the 40 days following the earthquake. The earthquake was later commemorated by an annual liturgy and su- of supplication. Agathias also claimed that there was a short-lived effect on the attitude of the population. The wealthy were motivated to charity, doubters were motivated to pray, and the vicious were motivated to virtue, all in an apparent effort of propitiation. Wait, no, did I do that? Was that right? Propitiation. 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 I think it's like propriety. No. It's also called expiation, act of appeasing or making well-disposed a deity, thus incurring divine favor or avoiding divine retribution. Propitiation. I guess, okay. That makes sense? Cool. Propitiation. We've learned a new (laughs) English word this time. (laughs) Um... Agathias reports that soon enough everyone lapsed into their former attitudes. Womp womp. I mean... It happens. Yeah. But hey, the important thing is that in times of need, people can stop being <laughs> being as mean as they are to each other literally the rest of the time. <laughs> Alright. Well, interesting little earthquake here. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. All right, so there's a lot of different links in this article that seem interesting. But the John Malala's, Malala's, uh, Theophanes the Confessor, got walls of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could go to Huns. There's winter Ooh. solstice, haze, sleep, slaves, thunder. Not, maybe not slaves. We uh, go thunder. <laughs> go thunder. But you can also go to X extreme. Which is the maximum intensity of the earthquake. Whoa. X extreme. <laughs> Feels like a B movie waiting to happen. Yeah. Um Okay. You know, I, I like I like the idea of going to the Huns though. I feel like there's a lot of things mm-hmm. the Huns did that we haven't had a chance to really explore yet, and I don't know. Uh the Huns, you know, they did they did some stuff. Yeah, I could go with the Huns. Like, walked through the walls of a city that just had an earthquake. We're just <laughs> like, uh, well... They apparently were not affected by the disaster. <laughs> they were fine. They didn't live in buildings. They just kind of walked around places. When the earthquake happened, they were just like, all right, cool, foot massage. They kept walking. <laughs> well, let's see what the Huns are up to. 
Let's do it. The Huns were a nomadic people. They lived in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia between the 1st century AD and the 7th century AD. As per European tradition, they were first reported living east of the Volga River in an area that was part of Scythia at the time. That's a cool name for a town. It's almost like Scyther. It's like the Pokemon. <laughs> uh, the Huns' arrival is associated with the migration westward of the of a Scythian people, the Alans. In 91 AD, the Huns were said to be living near the Caspian Sea and, by about 150, had migrated southeast into the Caucasus. By 370, the Huns had established a vast, if short-lived, dominion in Europe. In the 18th century, the French scholar Joseph de Guinness Guinness, became the first to propose a link between the Huns and the Zhongdu people, who were northern neighbors of China in the 3rd century BC. Since Guinness's time, uh, considerably scholarly effort has been devoted to investigating such a connection. However, there is no scholarly consensus on a direct connection between the dominant element of the Zhangnu and that of the Huns. Priscus, a 5th century Roman diplomat and Greek historian, mentions that the Huns had a language of their own. Little of it had survived, and its relationships have mainly been considered the Altaic languages. Numerous other ethnic groups were included under Attila's rule, including very many speakers of Gothic, which some modern scholars describe as a lingua franca of the empire. Their main military technique was mounted archery. The Huns may have stimulated the Great Migration, a contributing factor in the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. They formed a unified empire under Attila the Hun, who died in 453. Their empire broke up the next year. Their descendants or successors with similar names are recorded by neighboring populations to the south, east, and west as having occupied parts of Eastern Europe and Central Asia approximately from the 4th century to the 6th century. Variants of the Hun name are recorded in the Caucasus until the early 8th century. So they've been through quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't doesn't seem like it lasted, but yeah. they did it. They were there. They were moving around and... Messing stuff up. And then messing immediately up. after their most famous ruler died, they just collapsed under their own weight. Yep. That was, that was about it. <laughs> so let's see here. Alexander all over again. So before Attila the Hun, um, the second century geographer Ptolemy mentioned a people called Chuni when listing the peoples of the western region of the Eurasian steppes. The Chuni lived between the Bastarne and the Roxolani, according to Ptolemy. Edward Arthur Thompson said the similarity between the ethnonym the two ethnonyms the chuni and the huns is only a coincidence hmm. the ethnonyms is that yeah like, like a the same 
people, but two different names yeah, like, for them. But, yeah, okay. right, right, right. Uh, Western Roman authors often wrote Chuni or Chuni, uh, either with two N's or one N, in reference to the Huns. East Romans never used the guttural X at the beginning of their name. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's a, so there's not an X. In nope. Chunni. It's right. spelled C H U N N I or C H U N I. Yes. Apparently, Sweet. there's a guttural X in there somewhere. Honey. Honey. I don't. Okay. I want to on the links to, link to the X. I'm just going to see what this is all about here. The voiceless Beller fricative. Uh, honey. <laughs> okay. honey. Um, honey. Sound clip of what this X sounds like, so I'm gonna listen to it. We'll drop it on the website then. Yeah. We'll assume we'll assume that Eric I, I, I have no headphones, so I'm just gonna be in the dark on this one. Unless Eric comes out of there and like knows how to make the sounds. I will try to make the sound as soon as I listen okay. to it. Okay. Alright. This is exciting. This is an exciting time to be alive. We are about to hear an X that is not an X. Maybe we just need another letter, you think? Probably. Is it too late for that? <laughs> okay, folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this, is, this is the sound clip for uh, pronouncing the letter X, apparently. The guttural X. Okay. Ha. Aha. That's what the sound clip was. Aha! Ahem! Is somebody clearing their throat several times. pronounce this. That's... That lovely. is the guttural X. Ha! Hum! 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 Why? Why not H? Like, it doesn't, it's not that much harsher than a normal H. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> just, just H, guys. It's just H. Yeah, you don't you don't need to put all that effort behind it. Just because they were a warlike people doesn't mean you need to. You can just call them Huns. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> just the soft age, just the Huns. Just little Huns. Just little Huns. Little Huns. You don't need them to be Huns or Huns. Yeah, Hun. It sounds like no. a starting a motorcycle or something. Hun, like. hun, hun. <laughs> we don't need any of that. We just need a need a little nice little Hun. Yep. I mean, it, it's the same same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm with the East Romans here, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, so... Menchen Helfen and Dennis Sinor also dispute the association of the Huni with Attila's Huns. However, Menchen and Helfen proposes that Ammianus Marcellinus referred to Ptolemy's report of the Hunni when stating that the Huns are mentioned only cursorily in ancient writers. In ancient writers. Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. He opened them up. <laughs> he found some cor- he found some corpses and went to town. Hey, Ptolemy was into some weird stuff, these man. People. Uh, he does not exclude either that the Uragundi, who invaded the Roman Empire from the steppes to the north of the lower Danube, 
in 250 AD, according to Zosimus, were identical with the Viragundi, whom Agathias listed among the Hunnic tribes. What a paragraph. Oh my goodness. This is taking a lot out of me. <laughs> I can't say I blame you. Like, it's weird to, to think about, but like, just saying a bunch of words you have no idea. <laughs> Yeah. Like how to say is actually exhausting. Like, like, like your your throat muscles are just like <laughs> ah, your tongue is just like I don't know where to go. Yeah, like stuff you've never seen before. It's just a lot to take in, and then trying to regurgitate it is. Uh, it doesn't yeah. fast feel like regurgitation. Yeah, that's that's half the battle. <laughs> yeah, let's see if. Uh, so the Romans became aware of the Huns with the Hunnic invasion of the Pontic Steppes. Uh, that forced thousands of Goths to move to the Lower Danube to seek refuge in the Roman Empire in 376. And according to, uh, that's according to the aforementioned contemporary, contemporaneous uh, historian Amianus uh, Marcellinus. Their sudden appearance in the written source suggests that the Huns crossed the Volga River from the east not that much earlier. They invaded the land of the Alans, which was located to the east of the Don River. <laughs> so many complicated names. They're saying the River Don. Yeah, let's go to the land of the Alans. To the Don River. <laughs> like, these are so, such typical, typically named city people. city of Bob. Let's go there. And, uh... <laughs> the city of Bob. <laughs> The city of Bob Allen. The yeah. city of Tim Allen. Let's go yeah, to the city Tim of Tim Allen. Allen. Huh? <laughs> the Huns? The Huns? Anyway. More power. They slaughtered many of the Allens, forcing the survivors to submit themselves to or flee uh, across... The Don. <laughs> I said that wrong, but I don't. I don't. It the matter. idea. It's submit or flee from the Don. <laughs> okay. All right. The reasons for the Huns' its sudden attack on the neighboring peoples are completely unknown. After rejecting several possible reasons, including a climate change in the steppes and the neighboring peoples' pressure, Peter Heather concludes. <laughs> That the Hunnic Empire developed from war bands on the make, quote unquote, launching profitable plundering raids, which enabled them to increase their military power and impose their authority on the neighboring peoples. After they subjugated the Alans, the Huns and their Alan auxiliaries started plundering the wealthy settlements of the Gruthungi, or the Eastern Goths to the west of the River Don. I can't get over that name. Uh, the Gruthungic king, Ermeneric, resisted for a while, but finally he found release from his fears by taking his own life. That's a quote. It's not my thought on the matter. Uh, according to Ammianus Marcellinus, um, which refers to Ermeneric's suicide, or, more accurately, his ritual sacrifice. His great-nephew, Vithamiris, then succeeded him. He hired Huns to fight against the Alans who invaded the Grathungi's land, but he was killed in a battle. Wow, so people can even hire these Huns. Apparently, they're also mercenaries. 
Yeah. After Vithmiri's death, the Grithungi submitted themselves to the Huns. Those who decided to resist marched to the Dniester River, uh, which was the border between the lands of the Grithungi and the Thravingi, or the Western Gods. Man, it's amazing how many of these people I have never heard of. Yeah, <laughs> like, they just got absorbed or wiped out. It's crazy. European history is absolutely nuts. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> bonkers amounts of, like, uh, just tribes and types of people yeah. that just completely are gone. I mean, they're out there, genetically speaking. It's just that we probably right. just we don't acknowledge them anymore. <laughs> the real battle is lost in acknowledgement. That's really it. Yeah. Um... They were under the command of Alatheus and Saphrax because Vithimiris's son, Vidurichus, was a child. <laughs> Athenaric, the leader of the Ferengi, uh, met the refugees along the Dniester at the head of his troops. However, a Hunnic army bypassed the gods and attacked them from the rear, forcing Athenaric to retreat towards the Carpathian Mountains. Athenaric wanted to fortify the borders, but Hunnic raids into the land west of the Dniester continued. Most Ferengi realized <laughs> that they could not resist the Huns. They went to the Lower Danube, requesting asylum in the Roman Empire. The Grithungi under the leadership of Alpheus and uh, the Lorax, also marched <laughs> through the river. Most Roman troops had been transferred from the Balkan Peninsula to fight against the Sassanid Empire in Armenia. Emperor Valens uh, permitted the Thravangi to cross the Lower Danube and settle in the Roman Empire in the autumn of 376. The Ferengi were followed by the other Ferengi and also by the... There's another one? <laughs> By the Tefali and other tribes that formerly dwelt with the gods or Tefali, who also weren't gods. That's interesting. <laughs> um, to the north of the Lower Danube, according to the Zosimus. Food shortage and abuse stirred the gods to revolt in early 377. The ensuing war between the gods and the Romans lasted for more than five years. Support for the Gothic chieftains diminished as refugees headed into Thrace and toward the safety of the Roman garrisons. After these invasions, the Huns began to be noted as Foderati and mercenaries. As early as 380, a group of Huns was given Foderati status and allowed to settle in Pannonia. Hunnish mercenaries were also seen on several occasions in the secession struggles of the Eastern and Western Roman Empire during the late 4th century. However, it is most likely that these were individual mercenary bands, not a Hunnish kingdom. In 395, the Huns began their first large-scale attack on the Eastern Roman Empire. Huns attacked in Thrace, overran Armenia, and pillaged Cappadocia. They entered parts of Syria, threatened Antioch, and swarmed through the province of Euphratesia. 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 <laughs> yeah, sure. The forces of Emperor Theodosius were fully committed in the west, so the Huns moved unopposed until the end of 398 when the eunuch 
Eutropius gathered together a force composed of Romans and gods and succeeded in restoring peace. Do they have to specify that he's a eunuch? Yes. <laughs> is that centrally important it to is the story? absolutely the most important part. Uh, it is uncertain, though, whether or not Eutropius's forces defeated the Huns or whether the Huns just kind of left. There is no record of a notable victory, and there is evidence that the Hunnish forces were already going to leave anyway by the time that Eutropius gathered his forces. Whether put to flight by Eutropius or leaving on their own, the Huns had left the Eastern Roman Empire by the year 398. After this, the Huns invaded the Sassanid Empire instead. The invasion was initially successful, coming close to the capital of the empire at... I'm not even going to try that. I'm not even going to try that. Actually, I am. I have to. The Empire at... Ctesiphon? <laughs> However, they were badly defeated during the Persian counterattack and retreated toward the Caucasus Mountains via the Durband Pass. During their brief diversion from the Eastern Roman Empire, the Huns appeared to have threatened tribes further west, as evidenced by Ragadassus' early uh, entering... Italy at the end of 405, and the crossing of the Rhine into Gaul by Vandals, Swaves, and Alans in 406. The Huns do not then appear to have been a single force with a single ruler. That's the uh, thing. We keep referring to these people as a whole tribe, and it's just kind of like, <laughs> we assume they're a tribe. They might be a tribe. We don't know where they're from. <laughs> it's more or less just like... Hey, there's people attacking us. Yeah. Uh, they're Huns, I guess. I mean, they might be. They look Hunnish. They look like the last guys who attacked us. They're probably Huns, too. <laughs> it's, just, it's just generalized. There's no harm in that, right? Uh, many Huns were employed as mercenaries, uh, again, by both East and West Romans and by the gods. Olden, the first Hun known by name, headed a group of Huns and Alans fighting against Ragadat... Radagast... Radagasis in uh, defense of Italy. Olden was also known for defeating Gothic rebels, giving trouble to the East Romans around the Danube, and beheading the Goth Gainus around 400 or 401. Gainus's head was given to the East Romans for display in Constantinople in an apparent exchange of gifts. Now, my question is, why isn't this, like, a TV show yet? Just It show, sounds real Game of Thronesy. Pre-Attila... Pre yeah. Fun activity. Because Attila should be like, he's the climax. Yeah. He's like, after that, you can have your denouement that, of like, like, things falling yeah, apart. Like, like, you have like five or six seasons of build up where yeah. it's just like all these Huns being mercenaries just, and going out and doing yeah, you stuff. You take it from the perspective of the Roman Empire, so mm -hmm. it's like, it's interesting because it's like all these people are just kind of like showing up, attacking, you're just like, what's going on? There's chaos in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's just like, who are these dudes? And the Goths are like, we're from over there. We don't know these dudes. And it's just like, why are they attacking? Can't tell. No idea. Do they have? Do they need gold? Nope. They're wearing gold. Do they need things? Nope. They got stuff. Okay. Do they want land? Don't know. They probably came from land someplace. They have all the stuff. They got stuff from the land. So they had land. Then uh, last episode, last scene of season five show Attila the Hun as the stinger for uh, season six, season the final six. season, but yeah. like season six is like three episodes of glory, Attila's dead, and then everything goes apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, not just, but ironically, not just the Hun's empire, but like the entire Roman empire <laughs> as well. Like, yeah. it just all falls apart. 
It all hinges on one man. That would be a great man. show. <laughs> I would watch. I would watch the. I would watch that so good, and it doesn't oh, even yeah. have to be historically inaccurate. Like we can aggrandize it a little bit, embellish it with you know <laughs> descriptions better than the air grew dim. But yeah. like beyond that, yeah, I mean this stuff is uh, pretty good as it is. See, see, we made a good choice by going with ancient history and yeah. religion instead of cinema. Way more entertaining. <laughs> Way more entertaining than a comedy film from France that doesn't have any plot. Hey, <laughs> hey, I mean, the world's, world's got a real good plot of its own, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, the East Romans eventually began to feel pressure from Alden's Huns uh, in the year 408. Alden crossed the Danube and captured a fortress in Mosia named Moesha? Castra... Moesia. Mo- <laughs> Moesia, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the fortress they captured was named Castra Martis, which was betrayed from within. Oh. Uh, Alden then proceeded to ransack Thrace. The Ro- Eastern Romans tried to buy Alden off, which wasn't a bad idea, <laughs> but his sum was too high. So, wow. so they instead bought off Olden's subordinates, and this resulted in many desertions from Olden's group of hundreds. This is great. This is season three stuff right here. Oh, this is perfect. This like, is fantastic. It's like, hey, uh, can you stop uh, fighting us here? That'll be uh, one billion dollars. All right, how about we just give like nine hundred million to the rest of these people, and then <laughs> just, just first, and then they'll just kill them, and they'll just go away. It doesn't matter. One way or the other, we win. <laughs> Um, Alaric's brother-in-law, Athalof, Athalof, Adolf, uh, <laughs> appears to have had Hun mercenaries in his employ south of the Julian Alps in the year 409. These were countered by another small band of Huns hired by Honorius's minister, Olympius. Uh, later in 409, the Western Romans stationed 10,000 Huns in Italy and Dalmatia to fend off Alaric, who then abandoned plans to march on Rome. And now, the rise of Attila. Here we are. We've made it. <laughs> From 434, the brothers Attila and Bluto ruled the Huns together, which sounds like a really awesome season of this oh, TV yeah. show. That Here we go. Brother leaders, that's cool. Oh, man. I didn't even know he had a brother. Neither. Uh, Attila and Bleda were as ambitious as their uncle, Rugula. So they have an uncle in this, too. And it almost sounds like uh, Avatar, Fire Nation. Well, as soon as you throw an uncle into the picture, it's just like, <laughs> oh, here's Iroh. Here's an Iroh figure. <laughs> uncle? Okay, Iroh. Uncle Iroh. Uh, and in 435, they forced the Eastern Roman Empire to sign the Treaty of Margus. So this is uh, 26 years after they bought off all those people. And yeah, now they're signing a treaty, uh, giving the Huns trade rights and an annual tribute from the Romans. Hmm. The Romans also agreed to give up Hunnic refugees, individuals who could have threatened the brothers' grip on power for execution. Uh, with their southern border protected by the terms of this treaty, the Huns could re- could turn their full attention to the further subjugation of tribes to the west. The Huns breached the treaty in 440, <laughs> not too much later, when Attila and Bleda 
attacked Castra Constantius, uh-huh. a form- Roman fortress and marketplace on the banks of the Danube. Now, why would they put a? We've been cro- they've been crossing the Danube like <laughs> the entire time, and you know the Huns are treacherous. You know they're gonna like attack you at some point. Like, why would you build a fortress right? That seems like <laughs> it's just asking to be hit. Yeah. But the Eastern Romans stopped delivery of the agreed tribute, and they broke other conditions of the Treaty of Margus. The Hunnic kings turned their attention back to the Eastern Romans, and reports that the Bishop of Margus had crossed into Hun lands and desecrated royal graves further angered the Hun kings. Well, yeah. Okay, now now that's on you. Why is this bishop running over there, ruining... I've got no. I mean, probably something grace. like something over on Laven Bread. I'm sure, but like huh. it's. Uh, I I really this don't is... understand. Like things are already like terse. Now you go and you do something yeah. that, like deliberately insults them. Like okay. Like obviously <laughs> the Huns are pretty dangerous people. Yes. Capable of horrible things. Uh huh. <laughs> you don't provoke them and like... be like, "Come on, <laughs> come on, bring it up. I, I do this." Like, what are you talking about? Why? Like, why? just leave him alone. Like, it's, uh, it's trying to be peaceful here. But then, obviously, war broke out between the two empires, and the Huns overcame a weak Roman army to raise the cities of Margus, Singidunum, mm-hmm. and Viminacium. Although a truce was signed in 441, two years later, Constantinople again failed to deliver the tribute, and war resumed. In the following campaign, Hun armies came alarmingly close to Constantinople, sacking Sardica, Arcadiopolis, home of all the arcades (laughs) of the Roman Empire, and Philippopolis, home of all the Philips (laughs) of the (laughs) Roman Empire. Uh, Really confusing town. (laughs) (laughs) Suffering a complete defeat uh, at the Battle of Chersonesus, the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II gave in to the Hun demands and in autumn 443 signed the Peace of Anatolius with the two Hun kings. The Huns returned to their lands with a vast train full of plunder. A train full of plunder. Obviously not that kind of train. Still, the concept... kind of train, but... Yes. The concept remains impressive. That's a lot of plunder. That's good. That's good. That's a good, uh, you know, turnout. The unified empire under Attila. Oh yeah. Unfortunately, Bleda, his brother, died in 445. With some historians speculating that his death was actually at the hands of Attila. Would not surprise me. Nope. But with his brother gone, Attila was able to establish undisputed control over his subjects. In 447. Attila uh, turned the Huns back toward the Eastern Roman Empire once more. His invasion of the Balkans in Thrace was devastating. The Eastern Roman Empire was already beset by internal problems such as famine and plague and riots and a series of earthquakes in Constantinople, which we already covered. A last-minute rebuilding of its walls preserved Constantinople unscathed. Victory over a Roman army left the Huns virtually unchallenged in Eastern Roman lands and... They raided as far south as Thermopylae. Only disease forced them to retreat, 
and the war came to an end in 449 with an agreement in which the Romans agreed to pay Attila an annual tribute of 2,100 pounds of gold. Isn't that a lot of gold? That's a ton. That's a hundred pounds tons. more. That's yeah, that's two tons. That's more than two tons. It's uh, <laughs> two tons of gold. Uh, only the, fir- the the only first-hand account though that we have of this condition uh, 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 among the Huns and of Attila himself is by Priscus, an official in the peace embassy to Attila. Throughout their raids on the Eastern Roman Empire, the Huns had maintained good relations with the Western Empire, and in particular with Flavius. Adius, a powerful Roman general, sometimes even referred to as the de facto ruler of the Western Empire, who in his youth had spent time as a hostage with the Huns. However, this all changed in 450 when Honoria, the sister of the Western Roman Empire Valentinian III, sent Attila a ring and requested his help to escape her betrothal to a senator. Attila claimed her as his bride and half the Western Roman Empire <laughs> was his dowry. Additionally, That's ad- nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he decided he was going to have that. Additionally, a dispute arose between Attila and Aedius about the rightful heir to a king of the Salian Franks. Finally, Attila's ability to distribute treasure to favored followers was an important support to his power and the repeated extortion from the Eastern Roman Empire had left it with little to plunder. In 451, Attila's forces entered Gaul, accumulating contingents of the, from the Franks, Goths, Burgundian tribes en route. Once in Gaul, the Huns attacked the first Huns attack, first attacked Metz. Then his armies continued westward, passing both Paris and Troyes to lay siege to Orléans. Aetius was given the duty of relieving Orleans by Emperor Valentinian III. Bolstered by Frankish and Visigothic troops under King Theodoric, Aetius's own Roman army met the Huns at the Battle of Catalonian Plains. Although a tactical defeat for Attila, thwarting his invasion of Gaul and forcing his retreat back to non-Roman lands, the mark... The macro-historical significance of the Allied and Roman victory is a matter of debate. The following year, Attila renewed his claims to Honoria territory in the Western Roman Empire. Leading his horde across the Alps and into northern Italy, he sacked and razed the cities of Aquilia, Visetia, Verona, Brixa, Baragmum, and also Milan, one that you've heard of. Uh, hoping to uh, avoid the sack of Rome itself, Emperor Valentinian III sent three envoys, the high civilian officers Gennadius Avianus and Trigidus, as well as Pope Leo I, who met Attila at Mincio in the vicinity of Mantua and obtained from him the promise that he would withdraw from Italy and negotiate peace with the emperor. Wow. Prosper of... Aquatine uh, describes the historic meeting, giving all the credit to the successful negotiation of the successful negotiation to the Pope. Priscus reports that superstitious fear of the fate of Alaric, who died shortly after sacking Rome in 410, gave him pause. More practically, Italy had suffered from a terrible famine in 451, and her crops were faring little better in 452. Attila's invasion of the plains of northern Italy this year did not improve the harvest. 
To advance on Rome would have required supplies which were not available in Italy, and taking the city would have improved Attila's supply would not have improved Attila's supply situation. Secondly, as an East Roman force had crossed the Danube and defeated the Huns who had been left behind by Attila to safeguard their home territories, uh, Attila hence faced heavy human and natural pressures to retire from Italy before moving south of the Po. Attila retreated without Honoria or her dowry. The new Eastern Roman Empire, Marcian, then halted tribute payments. From the Pannonian Basin, Attila mobilized to attack Constantinople. However, in 453, he married a girl with the Germanic name Ildiso? Ildiko? And died of a hemorrhage on his wedding night. <laughs> wow. That's gotta hurt. Yeah. Man. Um, so, post Attila, after his death, his sons fought for the throne, and former subjects soon united under Arderic, leader of the Gepids, uh, attacked the Huns at the Battle of Nideo in 454, and then this defeat and uh, one of Attila's sons' deaths ended the European supremacy of the Huns, and soon afterwards they disappear from contemporary records. The Pannonian Basin was then occupied by the Gepids, whilst various Gothic groups remained in the Balkans also. So, it's pretty much Attila dies, and then it's just like, ah, uh, we don't know what to do. And everybody dies, or runs away, and just integrates into other cultures. And they go away. So, that's pretty crazy. Wild stuff. Mm-hmm. I never really knew much about the Huns. I'm glad we learned some. Yeah. Like, that all was I, cool to all know I knew about. was the name Attila and that they were generally kind of warlike people. But, but I think there's so much, like, I think you're exactly right. Like, this should be a TV show. The fact that it's not a TV show of some sort is, well... Disappointing. I mean, yeah. I mean, Netflix. Come on. I know, you want your game of? Th- you need a Game of Thrones com- competitor here. <laughs> yeah. Here's this. True Here's history. History. Easy. Like you have all of it written out. Right? Has all the right. drama. Has titular characters. Has characters that people didn't know about but are real things, but would still be interesting to learn about. Like, Alden. <laughs> Alden's great. Oh yeah. Like preseason. Uh, I'm telling you, it's it's rife, rife mm. for the picking. Yeah. I mean. It's all right there. Well, but, this is a this is a good good journey. Yeah, here from uh, December fourteenth, Eastern Orthodox liturgics to Huns. So, it's interesting. Yeah, and uh, go ahead and visit Facebook.com/slash/twcpodcast. Give us a like and follow on there, and chat us up. You know, we'll, we'll chat back. And head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can always check us out on uh, Stitcher and Google and all sorts of places. Pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us as well. And you can also find new episodes on our website, twc.ericturbio.com. And we also have a lot of other interesting stuff over there. Uh, You can order books, you can 
Check out old episodes. I don't know. You can do all sorts of stuff. You can also donate to this show if you like what we're doing here. Um, there's a nice little donate button. Uh, yeah. So I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Blind Lemon Jefferson for our outro song. Yes, love Blind Lemon. <laughs> so thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles.